When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose, our virtual boozer, which is now officially, as all of the other pubs start closing, open weekly again, because frankly, we have no live. People are already being furloughed again. Um, and we thought we'd entertain you by acting like dicks because it's what we do best. So, speaking of dicks, Marcus, what's up? <laughs> Hey, it's going to be a fun week, isn't it? Uh, so you've been furloughed, but you're expected to go in and work some more first, which just sounds pretty shit. Yes, and no comment. Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, I'm going to work tomorrow in the middle of all of this. We're yeah. going to be smiling to the public. For one more day. Excellent. Dorman, how's Dublin? Still rabid? Oh, yeah, always and forever. Um, I went outside today. It was a whole new experience. I haven't done that in a while. Was it raining? It was, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let the Irish bashing begin. Poor dog. Yeah. Uh, James wanted to tell you all a funny, funny joke about ice hockey until we told him no. James, how do you him? Yeah, not too bad. I managed to at least get out before lockdown. Went to a few historical sites before the ship, so... Uh... You did, now, and it baffled us when you were sending selfies round to the WhatsApp group. Because usually, <laughs> if for those that don't know, when we record this, James positions his camera so that we all get a view up his nostril or of his armpit <laughs> the entire recording. When he was sending us pictures of his face, everybody was going, who the fuck's that? Uh, okay, Lockie. Hiya. Oh, yes. so you have just been down to the rugby club to drink all of the beer like a trooper. Well, that's, you know, you, you've got to do your duty as a as a team player, and um, part of that is we've got to drink the bar dry before, well, the end of play on Wednesday. So I, was, I squeezed in uh, a couple of quick ones this evening. Tomorrow is going to be might be quite heavy. All totally socially distanced, of course. Not to stereotype, but Holmes would like to know how much loose change you currently have wedged under your foreskin. <laughs> <laughs> No more or less than usual is the you're probably, 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 answer. You're probably Locked. saving yourself for tomorrow night, really. You don't want to go a night too soon. <laughs> no, <it's> training. <laughs> yeah, training. Training, get, get it. Lockie, just take the kegs home with you. Go take a barrel, fill it up, bring it all home. I'm pretty sure uh, it will get rolled across South East London if there's any left. Draft dispense. Yeah, as long as you've got an outdoor dispense kit and gas cylinders and stuff like that, it could work. Not I sadly don't. <laughs> Lawrence is back for the second week running. He's in Finland and he's probably wishing why the fuck he bothered already. Lawrence, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. 
who else have we got? Oh, Nikolai's in the house. Nikolai is it? Oh. It really is fucking Eurovision. Copenhagen <laughs> falling. Yes. Nikolai, who is the king of Austria-Hungary in the First World War? How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Should we get it out of the way now? What? The whole reason why you wanted to be here tonight to tell. Oh yeah. The fuck told. Well, I already, I already wrote it on Twitter. Uh, because you're all wrong about the greatest war movie ever, and it is Dustboard, and you, you can all <laughs> just go away with all yeah. the British movies. Yeah, it is. You just can't handle it. It's a German movie. Hey, I chose the Norwegian one, thanks. That's it's true. almost That's like Nikolai doesn't want to win tonight, isn't it, really? Yeah. No, no, I just want to come on and say this, and now I'm going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he is sticking around because we're going to laugh at probably the most laugh-worthy knob in, in Austrian history in the First World War later on, I think. But we also have Marcus Alonso with us, which is Clive's new name. And for those who don't get the reference, Marc Alonso, Marcus Alonso is the forgotten man at Chelsea Football Club. And I forgot to put Clive on a tweet. So now he is declaring that he is Marcus Alonso left in the stands and the forgotten man of history. Hack, Aren't you, Clive? I am. I was surprised that you mentioned me. I thought you were going to go bypass me completely just now. I was going to just for fun, but then I thought I'd mock you anyway. Uh, we also have in the house today General Nivelle, um, because Lockie has decided that the tiny penis vindication uh, is no longer valid. So he has, one of them is Buller, and what's that one? So these are to hold up. We'll put them on Twitter as well. That's so it. We've, 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 got the, we've got the Reavers Buller of bullshit, um, and it's a, a picture of General Sir Reavers Buller, VC, um, saying bullshit, uh, with a little poo emoji. And uh, we've got the Robert Nivelle of Nobody Cares. Okay. Uh, well, uh, uh, General Robert Nivelle of um, uh, offensive action in 1917 notoriety, um, saying literally nobody fucking cares. We need mugs with that on it. We also have with us today Beth, who now works for a living again. Beth, how's it going? Yeah, all good. And then finding out yesterday that I will not get furloughed, so I will be working for the next four weeks, Monday to Friday, nine to five. So. Brilliant. Delightful. And, uh, Beth agreed with her husband that she was going to go dry this November. Uh, it's November the 3rd. It's his first night shift. He's left the house and she's drinking. So that went well. <laughs> uh, we also have a first time with us today. We have Merrin Walters, who is military historian, who's currently up in Norfolk. And I'm a little bit in love with how many books she's got behind her on her screen. Merrin, how are you doing? I'm all right. But social exclusion, it's its just like normal life here. Don't see anybody. Yeah. Top, top top yeah. We just got back from Italy, didn't we? Um, and we're... Yeah feeling the quarantine burn and also the burn of not having four pound bottles of Prosecco available 24-7 as well. Mm-hmm. Zach has just dropped in. How you doing, Zach? You're right, Alex. How you been? Yeah, how's the adulting going? Uh, not particularly well. I've just had a disagreement with my razor and my razor won. So uh, Is that what you're still failing at basic adult <sighs> tasks like shaving. How's, how's your relationship with your washing machine this week? Oh, the washing machine can just foxtrot Oscar, to be honest with you. <laughs> I've had it. Oh, you, know those, um... you, shouldn't, you shouldn't laugh too much. This must have been, what, your first time shaving, Zach? Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I it went badly. <laughs> I could be very mean to you, Marcus, but I won't because you've been furloughed. <laughs> it's just seeing you dab the blood. It's quite, yeah... Outstanding. Kit Chapman is with us. Kit, what time is it in South Korea? It is about quarter to five in the morning, 
but I'm fine. I'm on a beach. It's it's lovely. I've got a nice sunrise. What is it with the locals telling you you're fat, though? Oh, yeah, they've got, like, this weird fat-shaming thing in South Korea. Um, so there's this sort of obsession with, like, you know, BTS and, and boy bands and all that kind of thing. And if you don't fit into that, they're, they, they're quite happy to walk up to you and just tell you that you're fat. I had this guy on a subway. He just walked up to me and went, you're too fat for your age. I was like, thanks. Thanks, that's, <laughs> that's really what I needed. How do you know how old you are? I, I I have no idea. I mean, obviously, I've got this sort of baby face thing that he thinks that I could be in a boy band or a girl band or something, but I don't know. The only thing it's holding about... you back is the fact that you aren't the size of a nine-year-old boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm a six-foot-five, nine-year-old boy. <laughs> Are you saying that? Is there any age where it's quite good to be fat at? I don't think I've ever heard that. I, I, I have no idea. I think he sort of expects if you get success at a certain level, you're allowed to be fat or something. But you know, I'm 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 big. I'm like lucky. I mean, I'm starting to like yeah. this kid. <laughs> <laughs> it's looked at with envy in North Korea, at the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> or you get eaten. Oh, and you could say what you want because they're not allowed to use the internet, so they will never hear this. Right? Okay. Today. Like him. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are going to do history's most epic fail. We've probably done something similar before, but fuck it. We all like laughing at other people's misfortune. Uh, Alina is here as well. She's doing something with potato at the moment, but she is going to judge with Holmes. Um, And what they're going to do is not only are they going to select the most epic fail in history, one of our people here tonight is bullshitting. So there's there's a twist of fact or fiction going on. One person in the room today... Um, is just lying through their teeth, basically, and they've made the whole thing up. So at the end, not only do you and Alina, Holmes, and I know Holmes is already thinking, well, I'm going to have to do all the work. She's probably fallen asleep already. But at the end, you are going to not only have to select the most epic fail, but you are also going to have to spot the bullshitter. Got it? Yep. Right. Where should we start? Let's start with... Let's go Beth, because then she can really unleash on the cider. Yeah, thank you. Well, mine mine is quite short, I'm not going to lie, because I hadn't decided on it until about an hour ago. So, <laughs> classic. Um, so, what I think is one of history's, well, history's greatest fail of all time is the, the Narvez expedition, which was... A journey of exploration and colonisation, which started in 1527, um, Spanish, obviously, and was intended to establish colonial settlements and garrisons in Florida. Um, in 1526, the Holy Roman, Roman, Holy Roman, oh, I'm already... How much cider have you More cider, more cider. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Right, okay. So the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V... Um, gave a license to a man called Panfilo de Naves, who gave him this license to go to what is now the Gulf Coast of the United States for the Kingdom of Spain. And the contract gave him one year to gather an army, leave Spain, found at least two towns of 100 people each and garrison two additional forts anywhere along the coast. Naves had to secure his own funding for the expedition, but he recruited investors by marketing the promise of riches comparable to those recently discovered by Hernan Cortes in Mexico. 
He also called in many debts owed to him and used this money to pay for major expenses of the expedition. His crew initially numbered about 600 men, including men from Spain, Portugal, Greece and Italy. The expedition was met with disaster almost immediately arriving in the, in the Americas. They made stops first at Hispaniola and Cuba on the way to Florida. The fleet was dev- devastated by a hurricane that they encountered, along with other storms, and they lost two ships. By the time they left Cuba in February 1528, the fleet was dramatically reduced already. Their intended destination was the Rio de las Palmas, which is near present-day Tampico in Mexico. They never got anywhere near there. They ended up, because of storms, currents, strong winds, forced them northward into Florida, near to what is now the entrance to Tampa Bay. So really, really, of course, for Mexico. Navez decided to split his expedition into two, and he left half on the ships with the fleet and sent 300 of the men overland northward to try and find a large harbour that would be that he was insistent was there, even though no one had gone there before, and would be impossible to miss. The land expedition and the ships then never met again. No one really knows if they ever met up again. But as the land expedition marched northwards, not only were they encountering disease and starvation, but they were also intact, attacked multiple times by the indigenous people. By September 1528, following an attempt by survivors to sail on makeshift rafts from Florida to Mexico, across what is now the Gulf of Mexico, only 80 men survived a storm and were swept onto Galveston Island off the coast of Texas. The stranded survivors were then enslaved by Native American tribes and they continued to die from the harsh conditions. By the time we get to 1536, where... um, some of the group do actually manage to get into Mexico. There's only four of them left of the 600. The original um, man in charge of the expedition, Neves, he had died in 1528 himself of disease. Um, they eventually encountered some Spanish slave catchers and they took them to what is now Mexico City. And they published all of their stories about what had happened to them. But the whole quest of founding new towns and garrisons was a complete failure and four of them survived out of 600 which someone who's better at maths than me can figure out the mathematics for that the percentage for that but only four of them survived and what I love Lockie's just said when she says she hadn't decided is it that she'd never fucking heard of it an hour ago (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking pretty much yes also do you know my favorite bit of that was the bit that explained why they didn't end up where they were supposed to, that said that they encountered things like wind and currents and all things you'd reasonably expect to come across if you were getting on a boat and going across an ocean, which makes it sound even more fucking clueless. Holmes, have you got any questions? Not not really. I'm, I'm taking a slightly different approach this week. Quite often I'll Google stuff as I'm going along, but as we're supposed to find out which one's... Um, not true. I'm not doing that this week. Um, no, I mean, I think that's sort of, it was a bit of an epic fail, but it wasn't, wasn't that, I was, I was hoping for a bit more slapstick, I think, it really. They were just sort of slightly bad decisions that went wrong, but in that sort of situation could have been made by anyone, I think. 
Yeah, Dorman says, like when the French said they promised to support the Irish in 1798 and turned back because it rained, not that I'm bitter. <laughs> <laughs> Shaking his head. I still can't get used to the fact that Dorman is no longer in a cupboard when he speaks to us. I'm in a bigger cupboard. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Alina, any questions? Um, same as Holmes, really. I was sorry, Beth. I was hoping for something a bit more dramatic. And yeah, I was sitting well, there. <laughs> you wanted the natives eating them and stuff, didn't you? Exactly. We wanted a bit of horror. You know, they got boiled as skinned alive or something along those lines. But I mean, I mean, I could have, I could have bullshitted, but I'm not good at that. <laughs> oh, you're giving it away, Beth. Giving it away. Well, we the other thing as well. next mastermind. When there's so few survivors, can we really be sure that their their recollections are entirely accurate? I just I'm laughing that after half a cider, she can't take four away from six hundred. <laughs> no, the percentage. I know that four, I know what four is away from six hundred. Uh, but General Bullers is calling bullshit in the corner there with Lucky's sign. It's point six six percent, by the way. Just just saying. <laughs> Naff off, all of you. Outstanding. The uh, the yam yam is fighting today. Uh, right. Okay. Let's move on to yam yam. Tinkerbell is looking pretty feisty. Sorry, I just have to say that in the corner. <laughs> Let's move on to Clive. Sorry, Marcus Alonso. Well, before I mean, I if, we, if we if we were doing this in a couple of years' time, we'd be thinking we. The debate would simply be, which is which is the biggest cock up, Boris Johnson's management of the coronavirus or Boris Johnson's management of Brexit. But sadly, we're not there yet. We're going to have to deal with things from the deeper past. And looking through, quite clearly, the biggest cock up, the biggest epic failure in history was the gunpowder plot. And Kit said earlier that it's quite clear that Clive, he said, would do something that's shit and British. Well, it's English rather than British, but it was pretty shit. You all know the story of the gunpowder plot, and the reason I chose it is because, apart from being the most epic failure, this week is the 5th of November, so I remembered it. It came to mind. When you get to my age, memories are good. The reason... We all know the story. We know what happened group of guys got together, took lots of gunpowder, popped it in a cellar just under the Houses of Parliament, left one of them to watch it overnight, and it was going to blow up the next day and kill the king and everybody else around, and the world would have been a very different place. But they were caught. What one needs to look at, though, is how epic a failure it was. Just planting a bomb and having it discovered isn't that epic. But what was really spectacular about this one is that it was doomed to failure from day one. It was executed in an appalling manner. It almost came off, but even if it had come off, it wouldn't have worked. And not only did all the plotters get themselves killed, but they also got lots of other people killed in the short term. And what they created as a consequence lasted for and still lasts over 400 years later. The plotters wanted to get rid of a Protestant king. Nothing wrong in that. But what they wanted to do was to blow up... <laughs> Just laughing at this Jesuit educated, educated uh, claim there. Go on. 
Um, what they wanted to do was to effectively get rid of the Protestant aristocracy and replace them with the Catholic aristocracy, which would have fundamentally changed the way in which the world happened, or at least how Britain happened. Because if that had happened, Britain would have been more closely tied with Europe. Probably we wouldn't have had all the voyages of discovery and stuff like that going on. Britain would have you know, out and let Spain take over North America. We wouldn't have had the slave trade. We wouldn't have colonialism. We have, wouldn't have had all of those bad things. But in, and probably we wouldn't have had the Industrial Revolution and a few other things going on in the way that they went. We wouldn't have had Wellington. We wouldn't have had Nelson. And we probably wouldn't have had Churchill either. But they got it wrong. And how did they get it wrong? Well, they wanted to take over the country. But to take over the country, they needed people to run it. And so they sent a note to one of their mates saying, Oi, don't go to the House of Commons. Or don't go to the, sorry, Houses of Parliament. And so he let slip that he received this note. And as a consequence, the plot was discovered and completely screwed up. And the consequence of that was that, as I said, they all got killed. But there was also quite considerable persecution of other people. They were put onto the rack. They confessed not only to their crimes, but to crimes they hadn't committed and implicated lots of other people, all of whom were dragged in, hanged, drawn and quartered. So that was a pretty good thing. But they also created a very deeply held anti-Catholic bigotry in the country, which went on for many, many years. If it hadn't been for the gunpowder plot, there wouldn't have been the popish plot, uh, the fake popish plot and all the persecutions that followed that. There wouldn't have been the Glorious Revolution. There wouldn't have been many other things that took place. That whole anti-Catholic, pro-Protestant bigotry that underscores the whole of British history through Victorian times wouldn't have happened. It would have been very different indeed. And so not only did they screw up in spades, they screwed up for all history. So that even today, people in Lewis burn effigies of the Pope. The Queen can't marry a Catholic or her kids can't marry Catholics. Um, until the 1960s, Catholic couldn't become Lord Chancellor. An ingrained anti-Catholicism was established in this country that ran for 400 years, thanks to the, thanks to the gunpowder plot, which probably never should have happened. So yes, they didn't just fail, they epically failed, and they epically failed for a long, long time in history. And you seem really sad about it. Well, it was a little bit awkward, wasn't it? <laughs> it's like you seem like really like, damn it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Alina, any questions? We all know that the gunpowder plot happened. So I know he's not calling bullshit. So Clive, you've disappointed me. I I'm wanted, sorry. I, I really wanted you to win. I really did because you're such a sweetheart. But... It's, everyone knows the gunpowder plot. You're not giving me a challenge here. What I'm trying to give you a challenge on is the extent of the failure. So you're going for the win on the most epic fail, not on the fact or fiction, is what you're saying. There is that as well. You've sacrificed participation in the fact or fiction part of it. Yeah. Holmes, any questions? And it was a, it was a bit of a, again, a bit of a lack of slapstick. I mean, it might have been an epic fail if they put it under Chessington World of Adventures by accident and used blamange instead of explosives or something like that. But, I mean, you know, 
But they got, they nearly, they nearly got away with it. I mean, it was only, it was Guy Fawkes was the chap who was left watching it, wasn't he? Yeah. Because he's then, basically, he's the only name we sort of know, yet the bloke in charge was Robert Catesby, wasn't he? Who yeah. somehow slipped away from national consciousness and, you know, the events of Bonfire Night. But, I mean, today, I mean, Guy Fawkes failed even more greatly because now Guido Fawkes, his name is used by an arch right wing anti European blogger, which is an anathema to Fawkes himself, who was distinctly pro European. So that's an even bigger failure. But if it had blown up, they have estimated that everyone within 300, sorry, 100 metres of the centre of the blast would have been killed, which would have been basically the whole court. It would have been spectacular. Do you remember when Richard Hammond re-enacted it and blew it up and they were like, where's the king? And they had to wander for about a mile and a half because they found (laughs) the purple dummy head that was supposed to be... Uh, James the first but they did it was a pretty epic explosion you can see it on YouTube um because literally the last 10 minutes of the documentary was just replaying the explosion from loads of different angles and it was a bit like explosion porn am I the only one that remembers this was that a Brainiac episode I don't think so I think it was like a one-off thing with Richard Hammond but yeah I suppose I suppose the other thing I don't know Clive can you really say with certainty that they wouldn't we wouldn't have had the British Empire we wouldn't have had Churchill I think, well, firstly, the American Empire probably wouldn't have happened. If you remember, just before then, Walter Raleigh um, had been slapped on the wrist and executed for venturing into the Americas. It it would have happened. Uh, you know, at that time, the Pope had said Spain gets half of the Americas, Portugal gets the other half. And that's the way it would have gone, probably. It would have been a much more difficult job for the English to take it. and They probably wouldn't have. We'd have had a war of religion instead. Right. Okay. Let's go to. I want to go with someone. Uh, I'm feeling for the judges because they evidently want all-out fucking nonsense. So, <laughs> what have you got? All right. So I have gone for an expedition as well, but this isn't just an expedition that failed on its ass. This backfired so spectacularly it bankrupted a country and turned its greatest enemy into a superpower. It was a failure of idea, of planning, of execution, of leadership, of even knowing when to quit. I'm referring to the disaster that was the Darien scheme. So, already. The Darien scheme was Scotland's one attempt at colonisation. It was dreamt up in 1698 when Scotland, at the time an independent country, was in dire financial straits. To fix this, they tried to create a trading company because, hey, you know, it worked for those slaving bastards at the East India Company, right? They raised about half a million pounds, one-fifth of all the money in Scotland at the time, mostly from normal people. And you can tell how important this was because you try buying a Scot with their money. Um, <laughs> just falling on national stereotypes. Anyway, apologies to Scotland. Um, but here is William Patterson, who has a dream. Never mind building a trading company, he thinks. Why don't we build a colony and use that to get rich quick? And the site that he chose, obviously, was Panama, because that's perfect for Scottish colonisation. The plan was basically the same as the modern Panama Canal. Uh, Build a colony there, create a port where ships can sail from the Pacific, drop their cargo, have it hauled over to the Caribbean where other ships would take it back to Europe cutting off having to go around South America, saving months on your journey time. 
And the location Scotland chose for this colony was the largely inhabited, uninhabited Darien Gap. The expedition's planning was terrible. They decided to do the whole thing in secret because they knew it would piss off the English. And so they weren't able to get enough food or basic supplies to cross the Atlantic Ocean. Even so, around 1,200 settlers sailed off in five ships in secret. Um, the leaders of the expedition were a bunch of reprobates. Patterson himself was in trouble for embezzlement, while several, including Thomas Drummond, who would become leader of the colony, were, had been responsible for the Glencoe Massacre and were basically fucking off to Panama like that canoe guy to hide out for a bit. Their incompetence was completely obvious from the start. En route, they decided to capture Crab Island, this little bit of land off Puerto Rico. It was officially Scottish for a handful of days because they forgot to put a garrison there. And as soon as they left, a Danish ship just sailed up and claimed it for Denmark instead. That was about as successful as the whole expedition got. By the time they arrived in Panama, most of them were already ill from lack of provisions. But they still set up a colony with a capital of New Edinburgh. And it was at this point they discovered why no one had settled in the Darien Gap. In fact, if you look on a map today, you'll notice that nobody has settled in the Darien Gap. Even the Pan-American Highway, which goes from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, takes its one and only break at the Darien Gap. Because it is a massive, pestilence-filled swamp. Almost immediately, the entire expedition was wiped out by mosquitoes, crocodiles, yellow fever, malaria, typhoid, and worse. The Scottish had no experience building any colonies and were completely crap at it. For example, they remembered to bring 50 cannons for their fort, but they forgot to build the fort in a place where they had fresh water. And so they couldn't actually drink anything. The harbour they chose had tides that wrecked any ship trying to leave. And so unsurprisingly, nobody visited them. And nobody, not even the natives or passing ships nearby, were willing to trade them for their horrible rotting food. It wasn't just iron brew and fried Mars bars. They actually sort of did bring, sort of tried to bring fruit, but it all just, yeah, turned rancid. Now, rather than admit they'd ballsed up, the Scottish decided to lie and sent back a message home of how great everything was. It's wonderful. Come and visit. To keep morale up, they basically just gave everyone lots of alcohol. And soon you had 1,200 men, women and children strewn in a tropical swamp, pissed out of their skulls and shitting themselves to death. It was like being with Lockie on a rugby tour. Within eight months, there was only 300 people left alive and all except six men were too weak to work. So the survivors decided to back up and just head back to Scotland. Patterson survived, his wife and child didn't. Oh, but we're not done yet. Because after they, they sailed, they forgot to tell the resupply ship. And so the resupply ship would arrive with 300 men who discovered a ruined colony and had no idea what to do. The Scots, again, just fell to drinking, accidentally burned down one of their two ships, and then turned tail and fled to Jamaica, where the English told them to cack off and let them die in their overcrowded ship. Somehow, Drummond got wind of this. Uh, he arrived back, he took the ship back to Darien, just in time for another thousand victims to arrive. These were the poor sods who had read those brochures saying how wonderful Panama was to live in, and it all come for this amazing colony. Unfortunately, of course, the colony didn't exist, 
this broke apart due to infighting, general lack of interest, and even trying to rebuild this this shithole. And instead, they decided to try and take a colony from the Spanish. So they all fucked off to the nearest Spanish settlement, who promptly beat the crap out of them. Of the 1,000 arrivals, barely a handful ever made it back to Scotland. But even then, the Scottish were not done. They sent two further ships to Panama, this time just to be a trading company. Instead, the ships met up with a local buccaneer called John Bowen, who promptly uh, promptly sold them while the Scottish sat on a beach having a break. He stole the ships. That expedition just vanished without trace. The consequences of this repeated rampant failure were immediate. 2,000 colonists were dead, equivalent to about a third of all Scots who had gone to the New World at that point, and those who survived were completely ostracised. No one wanted anything to do with them. Worse, Scotland had been bankrupted completely. Just six years later, the Scots were forced to come crawling on their belly and beg the old enemy to save them. And so, in 1706 and 1707, the Acts of Union, essentially a hostile business takeover, ended Scotland as its own country as it merged with England. And thus, in the disease-ridden swamps of Panama, thanks to a bunch of pissed Scots, the British Empire was formed. I fucking love this. Yeah, I love more than anything, is it, in the chat, Lawrence has just put, it just sounds like Scottish people in Ibiza. <laughs> Holmes, any questions? Yeah. Kit, why did they decide to go there in the first place? They must have, you know, heard about it, had an inkling that there was something there. Yeah, they did. Uh, they'd actually been completely misled. Again, this, the, the leaders of the expedition were a complete bunch of reprobates. And basically a privateer had rocked up saying, oh, yeah, Panama's great. Um, it's fan- fantastic. He wasn't actually talking about Panama at all. He was talking up the coast at sort of a more towards sort of Costa Rica kind of area. So he completely misled them. Um, and people had visited that area before. I mean, Henry Morgan had sort of gone through the swamps to attack Panama um, and the Spanish colonies there. So people knew that they were pestilence filled swamps. It's just no one bothered to say anything to the Scots. And so they, they thought this expedition was going to be fantastic. It turned out to be a disaster. I'm going to give a prize on Twitter to whoever writes the best fake TripAdvisor review of Scottish Panama for the second lot that <laughs> up and found that the colony wasn't even there. So whoever listens to this and goes on Twitter and does the best fake review can have like a signed book or something from someone. Alina, is that more like what you were looking for? I've got to be really, really careful of what I say about the Scottish here because uh, one of my best friends in the whole wide world is Scottish. So um, I'm going to omit any negative comments towards Scotland, even though I think this is the most fucking stupid thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> um, what the actual... Anyway, um, I'm curious to find out what happened to William Patterson in the end. I mean, you said that they were kind of like shunned away the people but what actually happened to him in the end yeah no he made it back to scotland as i say his wife and child didn't um but patterson he was one of the people that went to found the bank of england um and so he was a he was a sort of a well-known financier at the time and uh it sort of obviously it ruined his his reputation um and um he was known as uh as, as sort of a bit of a disaster and everyone basically just shunned him when he got back to scotland um he lived his life uh in in complete misery he died um I think about 20 years later, um, and became a passionate advocate for union with England. So he sort of goes, oh no, I fucked the country. We've better partner with England now. What a winner. 
I bet he's not on any Scottish money, is he? Um, I don't, I don't, I, they don't even know where he's buried, <laughs> you know? Oh. They, they just go... In a ditch somewhere, probably. And uh, apart from their sort of Panama Canal-esque scheme, that was, was that the only thing driving this? There wasn't any natural resources there or anything? Anything no, there wasn't. I mean, the, the only idea was this this Panama Canal scheme. There is there is nothing in the Darien Gap at all. It is a swamp. Um, <laughs> it is it is a pestilence filled swamp. Outstanding. Right. Okay. Let's have a break to refill our glasses, and when we come back, we will examine some more of history's most epic failures. Okay. We've all been googling Nicola Sturgeon's mum. Um, if you haven't Googled Nicola Sturgeon's mum, Elton John, in the same Google search, you haven't lived. So uh, I'll let you do that while we go to our next guest. Uh, who are we going to do? Let's do our first timer next. Let's do Merrin. Merrin wanted to do the Emu Wars, but it's been on the programme before. And as much as I wanted to <laughs> myself laughing again about the point where you described the birds doing guerrilla tactics to outwit the Anzacs, um, we figured people had heard it before. So, Merrin, where did you go instead? I went to the Ottoman Empire. Um, cast your minds back to 1780s, 1787, Habsburg monarchy, Austria. I remembers it. Yeah. Entered into a war with the Ottoman Empire to honour their alliance with the Russians. Uh, so far, so good. Um, September... 1787, 1788, back then. Austrian army, about 100,000 of them. They'd split into two groups and they're looking for Turkish forces, okay? They're fairly intent on committing some really just, they just want to get in there. They're all wound up. So they set up camp, having not found the Turkish forces that day, on the outskirts of a place called Karen Sebes, or Karen Sebes, however you want to pronounce it. This is in modern-day Romania, but that's, that's kind of beside the point. A group of hussars, who were kind of in the out army's vanguard, crossed the Timis River looking for Turks, looking for soldiers. Really, they're just, they're like Scots on a... Just, just, they, want, they really want to go and get some action. They couldn't find anybody to fight. What they did find was a small encampment of gypsies, who were guarding some barrels of schnapps that they were taking to market. So what the Hussars did was, down the barrel of a rifle, sort of said, we'll have that, thank you very much. And they nicked the schnapps. And being the good soldiers they were, they decided they'd got to try the schnapps to make sure it was all right. So they cracked a barrel. It was okay. They cracked a second barrel. It was okay. And basically, they sat down and got absolutely hammered. After that, because of the hullabaloo they were making themselves, some infantry crossed the river behind them, found the hussars in full party mode. It was like Ibiza. And asked for some schnapps themselves. But the hussars decided, no, we're going to keep it for ourselves. We are the better men. And they actually set up a, like, like a little sort of encampment around their barrels of schnapps and held off the infantry, their own troops, and said, no, you can't have any. At this point, some cocky little bugger fired a pistol, okay? And with that single shot, the Austrians began shooting at themselves. Things got worse, if that's at all possible, because some infantry started shouting, Turks, Turks, as though they'd run into the enemy. So the hussars, pissed up, 
fled the scene, thinking a Turkish attack was imminent. The infantry, infantry fled in a different direction. But because the Austrian army comprised people of different languages and different backgrounds, they couldn't understand each other. So you've got all these men and horses running in different directions. And in an attempt to try and restore some order, the officers made things worse because they shouted, Halt! Halt! Which the soldiers interpreted as Allah! Allah! That was bad enough. Then, as the cavalry was fleeing through the camp, a corps commander thought it was an attack by the Ottoman Empire, and he ordered the remaining men to fire on the troops coming back towards the camp. In short order, you've got an entire camp firing at everybody, firing in every different direction, thinking the Turks are everywhere, when in fact there are no Turks to be seen. It got to the point where the entire army retreated from an imaginary attack and the, the emperor was knocked off his horse into a river. It didn't end well. And when the Ottoman army did turn up in that location two days later, they found that the Austrians had killed 10,000 of their own men, all because they were fighting over some barrels of schnapps. So there you go. That's my epic fail. A load of bellies. I love the I love the um, the point in the story where they build a schnapps fort. This sounds like something I might be motivated to do if I'd had enough to drink. Holmes, any questions? I mean, it sounds it sounds it sounds incredible. But it also sounds slightly plausible. And it wasn't one of the problems with the Austro-Hungarian army in the First World War that the they spoke 30 or 35 languages or something like that. So it, Funny you say that, because there is an expert on the Austro-Hungarian army in the First World War sitting in the virtual room. Nicolai. Well, it was either that or it was the Germans invading North America in the Second World War. And I didn't think you'd think that was plausible. But on the basis that but would their uniforms not have been slightly similar, even if their accents and appearance were radically it was They were drunk. Have you ever walked down the street, dark, drunk, and not been sure who's coming in the other way? You well, but at the same time, I've never thought, oh, that bloke looks exactly like me. So there's an element of that that goes on, surely. Well. <laughs> well, no, they, they didn't have, um, if I remember rightly at that time, they all had their own sort of dress as well because of the amount of people in the army. Maybe Nikolai can correct me, but I don't think they had consistent uniform. No. <laughs> That will be my answer. It's <laughs> definitely weren't speaking the same language. No. Alina, any questions? Um, not so much questions. I mean, I can totally get where they're coming from. You know, you're totally pissed up and you don't know if your friend is your foe and your foe is your friend. So for me, it is kind of plausible. Also talking to Nikolai and doing, you know, our podcasting and all the shit that we came out with, came out of that podcast and the craziness, I can completely believe that that totally did happen, especially with a load of pissed up guys. Okay. <clears throat> so she's done a job. She's convinced them. Right. Let's go to Leslie Dorman. You must surely have something utterly ridiculous from the annals of Irish history for us. Do I ever not have something from the annals of Irish history? I, I had to almost scratch the surface to find this one. <laughs> it's sort of like the Irish version of the Battle of Karen Sebes, because um, the Irish come from a long line of military failures. Um, we lent support to Lambert Simnel, who failed. We helped the Mexicans against the Americans, and 
lost. And we're also the only nation to ever unsuccessfully invade Canada. Um, <laughs> European nation, sorry, the Americans managed that too. But even within this vast military context, the Battle of Carrick Mines is without a doubt probably the greatest military failure in Irish history, and that is saying something, or at least that's what I'm going to argue tonight. So this took place during what you lot would know as the uh, English Civil War around that time period, but there was a simultaneous conflict happening in Ireland, which is known as the War of the Confederation of Kilkenny. And the Confederation of Kilkenny was founded as a result of a massive rebellion which took place in 1641. Uh, it began in Ulster in the north, a lot of very dissatisfied um, Scot or Gaelic Irish in Ulster were sick of being um, <laughs> crapped on by the old English and new English in Ireland. And this rebellion escalated into a full-scale conflict. And you had about three or four different factions all vying for control at the same time. It was a real, really complicated civil war. So you had the Confederates, who are the rebels, um, again, centered around the town of Kilkenny. You had the Ormondists, who supported the Duke of Ormond and would have allied themselves to the Royalist cause uh, in England. And then you had parliamentarians in Cork, Enniskerry, and other outposts around, the ta uh, around Ireland as well. So it's a very complicated thing. Within the Confederate cause, you've got even more subdivision um, because they've divided their army into three or four, one for each of the um, oh, provinces. That's the word. Um, so north, south, east and west, essentially. And then they were cooperating quite nicely, but then enters um, like the sultry girl next door to break up the friend group in a romantic comedy, the papal legate, a man called Cardinal Rinuccini carrying a colossal papal war chest to support the war movement. But it's his prerogative who gets the money. So despite sounding like a brand of pasta, Rinuccini quickly became the most important thing in this war. And it led to some serious Catholic dick measuring <laughs> among the Confederates. So at one stage, you had an entire army kneeling in a field, praying to God in the morning just to prove their loyalty. You had another sort of kitchen promising they could bake communion for the whole, you know, ex the whole military operation. And you had Archbishop Hugh O'Reilly promising that he himself would lead a crusade to Presbyterian Ulster. And I quote, to convert the heathen with fire and sword, which doesn't really leave the heathen with much room to maneuver. It's not the best quote, but nonetheless it kind of sets the scene. There was a lot of competition within the Confederate ranks for this money. So within this climate, in 1642, the Ormondists, they, who were primarily in Dublin, decided to march out and give battle to the Confederates. They were tired of sitting behind the defences and they decided to sally forth. And they set out and they set up a camp near the town of Carrick Mines. Uh, two of the Confederate armies independently marched out to meet them, that of Ulster and Munster. So they marched out, one from the south and one from the west, I guess, to meet at this place, at the near Carrick Mines. The Ormondists are under the command of William Stewart, who was a Scottish refugee from Ulster. And they've numbered about 4,000 men. Arrayed against them are about 7,000, divided roughly four to 3,000 uh, in the two armies. The Ormondists, under their quite capable commander, realised this isn't a fight we want to take. We're probably better off behind the defences and they slip away at night and the classic military manoeuvre, they left only their campfires burning to mask their escape. However, 
The commander of the army of Munster, Donagh McCarthy, had heard that the papal legate had promised the lion's share of the papal war chest for whoever captured the Duke of Orban banner. Unfortunately, the commander of the Ulster army, Phelan O'Neill, had heard the same thing and they weren't really communicating. So that night, both armies began their advance towards the camp in coordinated night attacks. Um, having spent about 30 seconds conducting reconnaissance, uh, war horns blared, they charged into camp. While at least at the Battle of Karen Savies, the Austrians had the excuse of being drunk, um, the Irish were drunk on who was the staunchest Catholic. So no quarter was given. It's an incredibly brutal clash. You have about 60 killed and several hundred wounded over the course of maybe 15 minutes. And it only ends when Phelan O'Neill realizes his error, tears off his helmet and sets a banner of flame. And that finally garners enough attention for people to realize that, hang on, we're all on the same side. It's probably the most disgraceful action in Irish military history. And I'm including Cromwell's invasion in that, which is as, as a result of this, because this knocks the Confederate movement for six. Because as a result of this catastrophe, Rinuccini just decides to give his money to the Ormondists and said, thinking they are the most Catholic. So it was just a complete cock up and failure and set the Irish independence movement back another hundred years or so. So that's my pitch. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> I just on behalf of the rest of the world. Dorman, dude. No one does it better. No one does it better. <laughs> Oh my god, what a shit show. Alina, any questions? I've got no questions, but I am suspicious of you, Dorman. <laughs> Is that just his his face though? I don't know. I think he's purposely gone on to confuse the shit out of me because I am sitting here going, what the f- actual fuck? Um Dorman, I'm watching you. Should I be concerned? Should I be offended by that? No, it's not hard to confuse her, to be fair. All you've got to do is chuck a boat in and her head would have exploded. Or a submarine, or a flying boat, or a tiny boat, or a boat boat. The the flying boats literally blow her mind. She's like, how could it be a boat if it flies? It's hilarious. Um, So no, you've just gone, you've well-trodden ground in terms of baffling Alina. Holmes, any questions? What was the name of the battle again? I didn't catch it. Carrick Mines which is now a very wonderful leafy suburb in Dublin. <laughs> There's no monument to the battle then? No, there is a shopping centre though. Excellent. I too have my doubts as well. There was quite a lot of detail in there. It's almost I, like it, it's both of you. It, it's almost like it had been slightly overthought. Or we've got this incredibly wrong and it could have been really well diligently researched compared to some of the others we've heard tonight. You know, yeah. I mean, I should I did do my MA on this as well. Well, you could I'm just s- say that. There's no way I can verify I that. can get my MA. It's there. <laughs> I can show you. Norman, send it to me now. Okay. <laughs> he has gone. Uh, Bullers is calling bullshit in the corner. Yeah. So this is my MA, which is an exploratory study of the O'Briens of Carrigaholt and their regiment of Clare, who contributed to the 1641 rebellion. So I will send you passages from them. That's a handy prop to have. Is <laughs> 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 oh, it say that all of the English people in the room immediately suspect the Irishman of being dodgy? I didn't even phone ahead. I know, racists, <laughs> all of them. 
Right. Sorry, okay. I wasn't paying attention. I haven't, I haven't put a finger on Dorman because I, I was sort of half listening, basically. Sorry. <laughs> he basically spoke Irish history, and most of us think he's bullshitting because we know nothing well, about I mean, Irish history. James, to be fair, most of us didn't know Ireland had history. The whole of Ireland is now sitting there going, who doesn't know about this battle? I, I've never heard of this gunpowder plot that Clive was talking about, so I reckon he's, he's, he's my number one suspect at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. let's go to Finland. Because if we know fuck all about Irish history, we know even less about the history of Finland. Isn't that right, Lauren? That's why oh, it definitely appears. <laughs> so, uh, uh, originally I thought it was going to use the the greatest epic fail of the, of the world's largest army at the time, deploying some 28 divisions in what they believed would be a two-week stroll to install a puppet government, and ended up with a 105-day slug, a deployment of a full one-fourth of its military strength and then barely taking enough territory to bury its dead. But I thought that might be a little too easy for here. So instead, I went to the Crimean War. So when we're thinking of the Crimean War, most of us think of the Charge of the Light Brigade, or the heroic Thin Red Line of the 93rd Highland Regiment Foot, or the Lady with the Lamp, Florence Nightingale, making rounds to the wounded soldiers at night. But what is often forgotten is that the other theatres outside the Crimean Peninsula I can never say half of these words, such as the joint Anglo-French naval campaign in the Baltic. And this is a travesty because it could be argued that this theatre contributed the most to the victory in the Crimea. So the Russians had a large Baltic fleet that was split between the ports of Kronstadt, Sverborg and Tallinn, and this posed a threat to both the French and the British. And then the Grand Duchy of Finland, which at the time was an, at- an anonym- autonomous part. I haven't drunk that much, I promise. <laughs> autonomous part of the Russian Empire was home to one of the largest merchant fleets at the time and allowed Russia to trade easily with the other European nations, especially in goods such as timber and tar. And so the British and French believed that a blockade of the Baltic especially around Finnish waters, would cripple the Russian economy, stop the Russian Baltic fleet from operating freely, encourage the local Finnish population to rebel, 
and even possibly encourage the Swedes to recover their former province. Under the command of the aging Vice Admiral Sir Charles Napier, a mixed fleet of 34 vessels sailed from Spithead in March 1854 towards the Baltic. When the fleet arrived, Rear Admiral James Plumridge was given a small squadron of four paddle frigates and ordered to take, burn, or destroy along the Finnish coastal towns on the Gulf of Bothnia. They soon found themselves outside the town of Rahe and proceeded to burn the large stores of tar, merchant ships, the shipyard, and storehouses. Next, they sailed a few kilometers north to Oulu, where they aggressively persuaded some local fishermen to pilot them through the shoals to safe anchorage. And then, under a flag of truce, and with a cannon aimed at the cathedral, they informed the local population that they were there only to destroy merchant and military-related property. And if they interfered, they would destroy the town. With this, with these two victories, they were getting a little bit cocky, and so they decided that they would sail south to the town of Kokkola. So weighing Akka, the vessels launched their small gunboats under a flag of truce, and the landing party contained some 21 officers and 231 men. Unbeknownst to them, though, was the day before a small detachment of Russian soldiers and two artillery guns had arrived, and a citizen militia of 100 were formed. This ad hoc force was now hiding between the tar houses, behind the fake fences, and in surrounding trees. As the boats got closer to the shore, the fake fences were toppled and the ambush was launched. Local seal hunter Max Kankunen fired the first shots, killed Lieutenant Carrington, the commander of the party. The landing party attempted to turn their boats around, only to find the escape was cut off by a chain. One boat was sunk, another was ran aground and was stormed by the Finnish militia, and the ambush was over by the end of the hour. 28 Royal Navy seamen and Royal Marines were now prisoners of war. 18 were killed, six of those were officers, and all but three of the landing party suffered some form of wounding. And today the boat that ran aground is proudly displayed along with its attached bronze cannon and other captured items from the battle in a specially constructed building in Kokkola. The resistance had the effect of making the Royal Navy more cautious about raiding in future, and it also led to many questions being asked in the House of Commons and was seen as humiliation by the Admiralty. The icing on the cake was that some 70% of the tar and timber that had been burned in Oulu and Rahe had actually been bought by the British merchants causing more embarrassment for the British establishment as dozens of very, very angry merchants published letters to the papers and demanded answers from the parliament. So that's that's what I think is the greatest epic fail. It sounds absolutely ridiculous. Alina, it is boaty. It is boaty, but I want to know, I mean, does this landing boat still exist? And can you just remind us where it is? The lander boat does exist, and it exists in this random town in the middle of nowhere called Kokkola. Okay. <laughs> so basically, if you go to Helsinki and you ask anyone where Kokkola is, and they'll say, I think it's north, and that's about as far as you'll get. Hi. Any questions? 
I mean, I mean, presumably, if the if the British were just sailing up the coast, and eventually word got around, and that's what enabled the sort of the attackers to suddenly to, to sort of hide in the harbour where they eventually ended up. Yeah, but at the same time, you've also got to remember it's Russians that are pretty slow at reacting. It's it's kind of difficult because I know nothing about this. I mean, the only thing I knew about was you mentioned that um, Russian the Baltic fleet was used to trade timber, and I know that's true. But apart from that, I'm I'm completely in the dark about this. Interesting. So, is it even true? Because Dorman is now snapping bits of his MA and sending it around uh, Twitter and is outraged. <laughs> outraged, I tell you, at your mistrust of him. Right, OK, let's go to Lockie. All right. Um, I'm kind of lucky in a way in that I've, I've kind of covered some of the preamble to mine in an earlier podcast. Uh, I think when we, we were talking about biggest twats, possibly. Yep. Um, because uh, I, I brought up the story of Cecil Rhodes and what a leading contributor he was to the Second Boer War. Well, we're, it's business time. Uh, we're getting into it, and uh, and so I'm I'm going to I'm going to focus on um, the Second Boer War and, and particularly General Reavers Buller's campaign, and particularly Colenso, uh, and what a cock up that was. Um, just to sort of rumble on how we get to Colenso from Cecil Rhodes and the Jameson raids and, and, and J- Jameson raid and being a twat. Um, in the years that follow, there's some shit diplomacy um, after the Jameson raid, and, and they'd made their poke at trying to take over Transvaal uh, very illegally. Um, shit diplomacy in which uh, the Boers do unsporting things like buy weapons, because they suspect the British are scumbags, and breed, um, and also kind of move into Cape Colony and threaten to... Um, vote the British out. Um, the, the High Commissioner, um, Alfred Milner, kind of realises that he's up against it and probably, in quite astutely probably, recognises that without a war, um, they're a bit stuffed uh, against the Boers and, and sends messages like that. Trouble is, kicking off a war against a small republic looks bad. Uh, and so London's not really going to go for that. But they do agree to send a load of soldiers, about 15,000 of them, which doesn't really touch the sides in South Africa, but it's it's something. Um, and so they come down from uh, from India uh, to at least guard Natal, and they get a chap called uh, Lieutenant General Sir George White, uh, VC, um, commanding. And, and their remit is to um, keep an eye on things. Uh, what this does... Uh, was a number of things. Firstly, there's some problems for White, um, and this is kind of where the the catastrophe starts. Um, White had never been to South Africa before, um, so giving him a big command in South Africa is, is not the sharpest decision. Um, he'd never fought a white enemy uh, before. His experience is against brown people, um, and so this was going to be a different one for him as well. Um, when he got there uh, from England, he discovered that the uh, soldiers from India had arrived before him and all deployed too far forward. So uh, they're very vulnerable, uh, as it was, and he didn't have any reinforcements at all. So if the fighting did kick off, then he was buggered. Um, uh, it, what it also did was it set the Boers mobilising because it sort of kicked them off to the idea that wars going to happen soon. So uh, the Boers sent the British an ultimatum saying um, you need to fuck off with your soldiers now. Anyone that's landed recently can fuck off. Um, Any troops who happen to be at sea can also turn around and fuck off. And uh, furthermore, you need to respect the Convention of London of 1884, which we all signed, in which Great Britain agreed to mind their own fucking business. Okay? (laughs) 
Um, so those were the messages that, that bounced around. Uh, there was no response uh, to this ultimatum from Britain. Uh, and so uh, a few days later, um, the Boers invaded uh, Transvaal and Cape Colony. And that's it. There we go. War time. Um, and so, yes, uh, the Boers invaded on the 12th of October, 1899. Uh, Mafeking came under siege the following day. Um, and Kimberley the day after that. And these are all prominent towns in South Africa, often with rich and important people in, and many, many diamonds, uh, of course, which is what the British were interested in anyway. Um, in spite of the fairly obvious um, problems that the British were facing, they did win a little victory, uh, actually. Um, a couple of little skirmishes in which they did all right. Uh, had, a, had a victory at Elandslagte. Um uh, Talana Hill was a fairly costly tactical w- w- win, um, but then at Ladysmith they got smacked, uh, unfortunately, and George White was uh, left ordering his soldiers into towns to hold them while they were all surrounded. Um, but it's okay. But it's okay because um, uh, uh, London hears the call for help and sends uh, General Sir Reavers Buller of the bullshit um, card uh, and a corps of three divisions, about 35,000 men. They set sail on the 14th of October. Um, fine. Uh, he did know South Africa, so this is better. Uh, he, he was a Victoria Cross winner as well um, from the Zulu uh, Wars. Hooray for him. Um, he does, unfortunately, look a bit like a fat, cross-eyed speaker from the Muppets. Um, so he wasn't quite as dashing uh, at this stage in his life as he, as he, as he possibly had been. Um, but, you know, he knew the ground at least, and that is something. Now, he arrived on the 30th of October. His whole force wouldn't all get there till December. But in the meantime, this British town's under siege. Uh, and so he needs to make decisions quickly. And so he immediately splits his force. And anyone with any kind of military um, kind of strategy training is probably immediately worried at this stage. But um, uh, Kimberley and Mafeking are nowhere near Natal, so he's going to have to do some splitting. And so he sends uh, a division uh, under Lord Methuen off to relieve Kimberley and Mafeking. Um, that's about 12,000 men or so. Uh, and off they go. All right, fine. Uh, he also leaves about 3,000 men in the middle of Cape Colony um, to secure against pos- possible Boer uprisings there. All right, there's some logic in that. Uh, as well, uh, and the main force he's going to take off to Ladysmith um, via Durban, and, and so away they go. And incidentally, they've had some news from Durban, and it's not good. Um, the, the news has arrived from people like John French and Douglas Haig, who've come from there. Uh, their supplies are short. Uh, there's a lot of wounded um, from, from where they've tried to break out. Breakout is impossible. Um, uh, morale is low. Uh, they're, they're terrorized by uh, harmonized local choral singing. Um, the, that's not, that's just a joke. Yeah. Um, there's more bad stuff. They've had, um, uh, one of their supply trains has been captured, um, and with it, Winston Churchill. Although that's not the bad news. The, the ammunition and food is, is bad news. Winston Churchill, they could rather take or leave at this time, uh, I'm sure, but he's been captured. Um, and so they're under pressure. Uh, Buller's under pressure. So he's got to get around to Durban. Uh, and he does. And he gets moving uh, towards Ladysmith. Now, he's, he's got, ideally, he probably wants to take the most direct route, but uh, that would take him through Colenso, which is a town. And they decide they need to get across the Tugela River somewhere a bit safer. And uh, Colenso is the most direct, but actually it's, uh, it's a bit safer to cross uh, about 15 miles down river at Potgeiter's Drift where there's going to be fewer of the enemy and, and less cover and so that's where they start marching off until 
the bad news starts coming in. And this is Black Week. Okay, so Black Week is news arriving. 10th of December, Buller gets word that his 3,000 force that he's left at Storm, um, left in the middle of Cape Colony has been smashed up at Stormberg. Um, and they've lost about 800 men, 700 of whom were captured, actually stuck their hands in the air. Um, rather than kill the wounded. And that is, is very bad news indeed. But it's not quite as bad as what the news he gets about the following day's action, in which Lord Methuen has been smacked up at a place called Margusfontein and lost a 1,000 uh, men on top of you know, earlier losses in skirmishes, and they were withdrawing. So his other forces were roundly and soundly tail between legs, heading backwards with heavy losses. And this puts the pressure on him further. So he says, sod going somewhere safer. I'm going straight up to Colenso. Bash, and away we go. Now, up he gets to Colenso. How does it go there? Well, he got ready to move against uh, Colenso through the 13th and 14th, uh, and so got his guns into position first. All right, logical enough. He's got some quite heavy naval guns, and these are going to stay back on a position which is coincidentally called Gun Hill. I think it might have been called Gun Hill later, possibly. Anyway, um, and the smaller field guns are going to go up closer to the action. All of this is logical enough so far. Burr trenches visible on the hillside, all right? So we can sort of see uh, where they are, and Buller himself is reasonably familiar with the topography, and so all of this sounds fine. Uh, final prep made for advance on the early morning of the 15th, and they're going to cross it a couple of the um, uh, little drifts, they're called, like the fords uh, in the Tagala River. And they also want to take the road bridge uh, in the town. All right, 12 field guns they're pushing up uh, and they're getting ready. And at 5.30 in the morning on the 15th, action time. Away we go. Battle of Colenso. Um, off goes the Irish Brigade. And they're going to march off and cross the river uh, drift and, and, and get away off on, on Buller's left. Hey, the Irish. Uh, it was actually still dark when they set off, um, but uh, but not for too much longer. They're looking for the, the bridal drift, um, uh, and uh, that kind of, in theory, leads them into a bit of a loop uh, in the river. They had a local guide uh, who take them in, and about 6.30 in the morning, uh, they're heading into this um, loop in the river. And I can imagine the brigade commander, a chap called Hartz, um, uh, possibly alarm bells ringing uh, as he marches into this loop in the river um, with no obvious way out as light is sort of starting to emerge. And if our alarm bells weren't ringing for him at that stage, they probably sounded loud and clear when the guides buggered off and then fire was opened up on them um, because it did. They came under fire from um, artillery that they couldn't see and rifle fire uh, that they couldn't see as well. So they started shooting back at where they saw the positions on the hillside, the trenches, to find that had absolutely no effect because what the sneaky old Burr had done is cut very obvious dummy trenches in the hillside and actually conceal himself around and about where he could shoot from um, with no observation uh, at all. Things going badly. A unit cohesion completely melted. Um, some of the brighter ones tried to sort of take positions outside the loop, uh, but they were actually ordered to go back in uh, to the river loop. So Buller at this time, what's he doing? Well, everything's, everyone's shooting, but they haven't really got anything to shoot at. Uh, he can't register on Boer artillery, um, and they, unsurprisingly, they were firing from cover with smokeless shells. Uh, riflemen also firing from cover. Um, Buller sends a rider to go and get the Irish Brigade. 
and said, right, come on, you, you need to come out of that, um, that loop in the river. Nothing's happening for you there. Uh, and so off goes a rider. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the Buller's own artillery opens up on his right, way too close to the action. He thinks, bloody hell, where have they got, where have they got the orders to fire from? Or what are they doing so close up um, here? So he sends more riders off to uh, the artillery to go and find out what's going on. Um, all of a sudden, his own artillery goes quiet. And that's not a good sign. The, the field guns uh, on his right have stopped firing. So he goes riding over to his field guns to meet a load of his own officers charging the other way, um, saying, the guns are lost, uh, all the crews are knocked out, we're running for it. So they've left the guns, they've left the ammunition, they've left everything there because they've come under poor small arms fire. It, it's becoming calamitous. Um, at this point, the Irish Brigade is still in the loop of the river. Uh, by the way, so he sends another rider to go and try and hoit the Irish um, off out of it. Hearts completely pinned. It gets worse because um, what Buller does is try and send some more infantry off to put some fire down and relieve the Irish brigade. Actually, British artillery further back then opens fire on this relieving infantry coming in because they've, they haven't identified them. Um, and uh, through the efforts to get um, the guns back, they managed to haul a, a, a couple of the guns back. And there's some Victoria Crosses um, awarded here. But the whole thing boils down to um, disastrous mayhem. And uh, I'll, I'll, con- I'll sort of conclude with um, some of the loss statistics. The, the British only had 143 killed, maybe, which isn't too bad. I mean, 240 missing, um, probably as uh, a company of the Queen's, um, sorry, the Devons stuck their hands in the air after being surrounded. 755 wounded and 10 guns captured. The Boers registered losses of eight killed, and 30 uh, wounded, and many British um, recorded that they hadn't seen a boar all day. Um, And although the story did uh, continue, um, I suppose, and they did cross the river uh, eventually, you do have the Battle of Spion Cop, where they managed to uh, seize defeat from the uh, jaws of a score draw, um, probably. Um, All of this resulted in Buller being relieved of his command, and... um, a grown-up being sent to take care of the, uh, the the conflict down there. And that's possibly one for another podcast. So um, Black Week uh, resulted in um, about 2,000 Brits surrendering uh, and a few more hundreds becoming uh, dead casualties and, and, and possibly a couple of thousand becoming wounded uh, casualties and not achieving very much. Do you know as well that the poor sod that had to go and relieve everybody... His son had died at Colenso winning a Victoria Cross. So he had indeed. He's one, yeah. Roberts was very impressed with that. Lockie, that was so epic a failure that Kit managed to go and have a shit, wash his hands, go get breakfast and eat breakfast before you'd finish the extent of the failure. Uh, so I probably went on too long, didn't I? <laughs> No, it was brilliant. Um, it was undoubtedly a complete clusterfuck. Isn't that where uh, Congreve gets his VC as well, Daddy Congreve? Yeah, Walter Congreve and Freddie Roberts um, were. It's the same action. They're, they're the two officers that go riding in together. They were, um, uh, and they both get wounded, uh, of course. And some others manage to hoik a couple of guns back, but but not them. Yes, Black Week, which uh, Dorman loved hearing about. Um, British failure, so he could have listened to you talk about that all night. Holmes, any questions? 
You're on mute. Sorry, my, my cat was snoring quite loudly through that. So I, uh, I, had, to, I had to mute. Probably not the only one. <laughs> I mean, it, that was, it was quite a long description. My hand started to hurt while I was taking notes. Um, but in the, in the context, it, it was slightly lacking in slapstick, as some of the others were, it has to be said. But in the context of a truly epic fail, what were the circumstances? Were they really bad or did we just regroup and then go off to do what we were going to do anyway? No, well, they... It, it was a, it was a, a, a loss. I mean, certainly, um, the kind of left flank of the, the big operations, the efforts to re, uh, to relieve, um, uh, Mafeking and, uh, Kimberley were, were, were no good at all. Um, they did manage to get across, as I said, but, um, weren't, and, and, um, and press on even after Spee on Cop, um, they threatened to relieve Ladysmith, but it wasn't until Lord Roberts turned up with 180,000 men, um, which is very much, you know, daddy's taking over now, um, that uh, actually they they got anywhere. But even after that, it it turns into this wearing guerrilla campaign that even Lord Roberts is not, is not set for. And it turns into a really, really horrible um, spell of fighting that of course ends with a treaty. Um, and some concessions, which upsets people. Uh, Lawrence is pointing out in the chat that Finland whooped us in that battle or in that campaign. Which there was a Scandinavian brigade out there, yeah, fighting with the with the Boers. With the great yeah, the, 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 the military might of Finland. That's another slap in the face for the British, <laughs> isn't it? I think they. I think they got. Um, Oh, I'm pretty sure Lord Roberts sorted them out at some point then. I, I was reading, I can't remember precisely what point in the conflict the Scandinavian Brigade was destroyed, but I think it was destroyed at one point. Um, it was, hang on, it was just, just they surrendered, was it, like right after the Battle of Hardeberg. Hardeberg? Okay. Yeah. Scamps. Alina, any questions? So I know less about the Boer War than I do about boats. So um, that is saying something that I know is zip, nada, nish. But Lockie, listen, I really didn't catch all of that. Can you just redo it all just for my benefit? Sail <laughs> <laughs> to South Africa, some big fights, didn't go particularly well, and a guy who looked silly. Awesome. Cheers for that. Beth, you all right there? Is that the yeah. end of the bottle of wine? Mm-hmm. Right, November, yeah. going really well in the West Midlands. I imagine sometimes I'm at the stage, anyone who knows me very well knows that wine is my nemesis. And it, I almost feel like I've never, I'm a very, I'm a good girl, I've never done drugs, but I almost feel like this is what weed like sometimes. Like I'm at that nice little buzz phase. Like it's gonna be your husband's nemesis when he comes home after a twelve hour shift and finds you fall to the carpet as well. Okay. <laughs> it's like Brooklyn nine nine, you know, there's there's one glass Beth, two glass Beth, this is like three glass Beth. Floor. Oh, uh, some people, what, what some, some people here have seen four and five and six glass Beth, so Marcus saw six glasses. Well, he saw a cupcake going towards his face. That's another story. Uh, James. Okay, then. Well, seeing as I can't do the sports failure, Toronto Maple Leaf fans, thank Alex. 
I'm actually well, going to... I'm the for... only Toronto Maple Leaf fan that listens to this podcast. I will get over it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't support the Leafs, thanks. I'm actually going for the Battle of San Jacinto as part of the Texas Revolution because this is an epic fail of epic proportions. Um, it's... And have lots of as well if it's Texas. Basically, at this point of the war... The Mexicans had been kicking seven shades of hell out the Texans with the Alamo and all the rest of it. And the Goliad, Goliad, is it? The massacre at Goliad. So basically, the Mexicans had been kicking seven shades of shit out of the Texans, which, of course, they didn't like. And then we get to the Battle of San Jacinto. The... General of the Mexican army was also their president at this time, General Antonio Lopez de Santa Anas. And he basically thought the revolution was over. He was kicking all the arse, etc., etc. Now, he finds the remaining Texan army, which at most was 900 men, led by General Sam Houston. And... They had a few skirmishes and everything, and Santa Ana decides to camp in this open plain by a lake with a marsh with woodland behind him. Meanwhile, the Texans were camped on the bank in woodland to hide their numbers, but also a great defensive position, except they had nowhere to retreat to. So a bit of risk on both sides. Uh, General... Santa Ana waited for General Martin Perfecto de Cossi's reinforcements. So he basically doubled the size of his army and outnumbered the Texans by about six, seven hundred men at best. So, and there was also about four thousand Mexicans not too far away that could have helped. However, because Cossi's reinforcements had been marching for over 24 hours, the next day, Santa Ana, despite knowing where the Texans were, despite the Texans having a few victories in skirmishes and getting the high ground, decides it's a great time to let his men have a siesta in the middle of the day, with the Texans 500 yards away within pissing distance, so to speak. And the Texan, Sam Houston, he realises this and he goes, Okay, they've done defences, but let's go for it. So they attacked. They effectively did one volley at 4.30 in the afternoon. The cavalry went in. The Mexicans completely broke, and it became an absolute massacre. Santa Ana fled, and he was eventually captured the next day. Over 650 Mexican soldiers were killed in the marshes, 300 captured. And only 11 Texans died, with 30 others, including Houston, wounded when he tried to stop his men massacring the men in the marshes. So the Mexicans didn't just lose the battle. They had their president captured. They had multiple generals captured. The remaining 4,000 troops under the commands of Urea and Vincente Filsola decided that although they felt they could beat the Texans, at the same time their supplies were completely trashed and the morale for the Texans was high. It ended up in a peace treaty being made by the Mexicans to the Texans, which didn't recognise Texas as a sovereign state, 
But Santorana basically promised them that he'd lobby it with the Mexican Congress. And as we know, the Mexicans never got Texas back. So all this happened because the president of Mexico, who was a military general, fucked up where he put his camp. He decided it was a good idea to have a siesta in broad daylight with the enemy within pissing distance. And the enemy took full advantage of that. The Texans should not have won that revolution, and yet somehow they did. Shame. Uh, do you know what? My Spanish teacher listens to this uh, podcast, my school Spanish teacher, and uh, she's going to die a little bit inside every time she hears James pronounce a name. Uh, well done. Holmes, any questions about this one? When the, um, when the Mexican troops had their siesta, was that in full visibility of the Texan troops? Were they just lying down? How did they know? It was literally, the Texans were 500 yards away in their own camp. I think there was a bit of high ground between them. But the Texans had pickets, so they could see full well what was going on. And Sam Houston just went, fuck it, and went for it. Especially as in the previous day, his troops had belittled him for not engaging in full battle during the skirmishes. But um, So he just went, fuck it, and went for it. Oh, dear. I mean, to be fair, if you need a nap, you need a nap. Um, <laughs> potentially not the best military strategy. I might need a nap. Yeah, <laughs> no more wine for you, Alina. So basically, if they didn't have the siesta, they more or less could have possibly gotten Texas back. Oh, they they would have crushed the revolution quite easily. They just had way more numbers and way better equipment. I mean, t- the Texan government had, was fucked off somewhere. They'd had to escape. Sam Houston backed himself into a corner. So, yeah, if it wasn't for the siesta, Texas would be part of Mexico. I can't describe my emotions to how much of a nap causes this much problem. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, right, we have a couple more to go. Uh, Let's go to... I think they're all going to be military side, but it's great. Uh, let's go to Nikolai. Have you just about yeah. finished seething over Das Boot now? <laughs> I am done with that one. Yeah. Uh, yes. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that I have chosen something World War One, and, of course, also something Austro-Hungarian. And granted, there are a few massive fails to pick from here. Um, However, the greatest fail must be uh, Austro-Hungarian Chief of Staff Conrad von Hüstendorf's not one, not two, uh, but three failed offensives in the Carpathians in 1915 to relieve the besieged fortress of, and I'm going to try again, uh, Shemis and its garrison. Um, so a bit of background about this. Um, following the defeat of his armies in the massive battles in Galicia, in 1914, Conrad was uh, forced to retreat to a new line behind the Carpathian Mountains uh, on the border of what is today uh, Hungary and Slovakia. Um, but in doing so, he left about uh, 130,000 uh, men to garrison the, uh, the fortress of Shemis on the San River to disrupt and delay the Russians' advance. As expected, the fortress uh, was soon besieged by the Russians, and while a counteroffensive in October 1940 briefly lifted the siege, 
This didn't last long, uh, and by the end of the year, uh, these 130,000 Austro-Hungarian soldiers and officers uh, were trapped within the fortress some 100 kilometers behind Russian lines. Now, for Conrad, the relief uh, of this fortress became a near obsession. Uh, not only would the surrender of the garrison be a blow to the prestige of the army and to himself, it would also convince neutral nations to join the war against Austria-Hungary. Uh, moreover, it would, uh, the successful relief of the fortress would prove that uh, he could undertake a major offensive on his own and be victorious, uh, which would also play into his own strange personal interest in convincing his mistress, Gina von Reininghausen, a wealthy uh, wife, uh, or sorry, a wife of a wealthy and influential Austrian industrialist to marry him. Uh, and in Conrad's mind, only by being a successful general on the battlefield uh, would a marriage with her be possible. And when things went wrong, he'd often sit down and complain to his generals that, that not not about losing the battles or losing the men, but lo- about the fact that he might now lose his Gina uh, and that she might leave him. Anyway, uh, so he decides to go. Dude, she'd have left him. I'm just saying. <laughs> it blows my mind. What a knob. It is a madman. Uh, and. <laughs> The soldiers will, of course, pay the price for this uh, madness. Anyway, he uh, he decides to go on the offensive in January 1915. And since the short, shortest route to uh, Chemis is through the Carpathian Mountains, uh, this is where the attack will be, uh, a decision which would be uh, or would prove catastrophic uh, as he completely failed to consider that his army was already utterly exhausted that it lacked supplies, that it didn't have any uh, artillery, and most importantly, that it didn't have any proper winter clothing. And attacking in mountains in the winter is not a good idea. Uh, So to uh, not go into too many details about this, he launches three uh, offensives through the snow-covered mountains in freezing temperatures, and three times he fails. There is little to no variation uh, in, in the tactics except it's different armies being thrown in and some units uh, record losses of more than 90%. And when we talk units, it could be anything, but in this case, it's actually like at core level. So some corps would go into the battle with 18,000 men and lose 60,000, uh, 16,000, of course, uh, or more. Um, and hundreds would freeze to death in, in single nights because they didn't have any uh, winter clothing. The wounded uh, couldn't be evacuated and were often left behind when the troops retreated. And many was uh, to become food for the wild animals. And the phrase devoured by wolves became a cause of death in the casualty reports. Uh, suicides uh, were also becoming more and more common as soldiers desperately sought a way to, out of their impossible situation. Uh, and to uh, feed the offensive with still more troops, the uh, period of training for newly conscripted soldiers were lowered to just two weeks uh, with many arriving at the front without ever having fired their weapons. And deceased with rampant, especially cholera. Um, so by March 1915, when the uh, the last of his three offensives came to an end, Conrad's troops were still far from Chemis, uh, which was now quickly running out of food. Uh, following a doomed and costly breakout attempt in the wrong direction by the fortress garrison, undertaken for no other reason than to save face, the fortress was surrendered to the Russians. Now, to make this fuck up even worse, um, the uh, news of the fortress surrender 
was not conveyed to the Austro-Hungarian armies in the Carpathians uh, before the third offensive was launched. So they actually launched an, uh, the last offensive to relieve a fortress that was already in Russian hands. Now, in terms of casualties, the uh, Carpathian Winter War, as it's sometimes known, ranks amongst the costliest battles of the First World War and only serves to highlight the scale of Conrad's failure. Um, 800,000 Austro-Hungarian casualties in about three months. And to put that into perspective, that's more than the French and Germans lost in Verdun combined, and that battle lasted about 10 months. Um, And Conrad's chances of reaching Chemis had always been poor, but attacking across mountain range in the winter with an exhausted army plagued by supply problems and a shortage of artillery and of winter clothing eliminated any chances of victory even before the offensive began. The unrealistic goals, the unbelievable poor execution, and the devastating casualties all make Conrad's Carpathian offensive the biggest fail in history. It's done. fucking epic, isn't it? Dude, how many... This is just one of his fuck-ups. This guy went on for years. Um, yeah, how this isn't even his first. How many Hungarians do you reckon this guy killed to get laid in World War One? <laughs> It's hard to put it like that, but it's in the millions. <laughs> so. Isn't that the reason he just wanted World War One in the first place as well, because of his mistress? You think he <laughs> thought something like um, it'd be more acceptable to have a mistress if they were at war or something? <laughs> James, do not kill 100,000 Austro-Hungarians just to get laid. This is not, <laughs> it's not the white way to do it. <laughs> not unless I'm playing Hoi 4. <laughs> I just want to say, but he did I get the to, girl. Um, it did work. <laughs> they did this as a, a three-parter in um, in on History Hack, as most listeners will know. I was listening that cycling from Seoul to Busan, and it was absolutely my favourite episodes. It was just you were just terrific. Thank you. Do you know what the amount of our listeners, Nikolai, that just have a ridiculous man crush on you is ridiculous. Giles has read every book you've ever recommended on an episode of History Hack and worships every one of them. Give Giles a new book to read. He read the Czech one, and he read the Italian officer's memoirs. Give him something else. <laughs> I'll find something more. Right, okay. Holmes, any questions about that absolute fuckfest? Although, Lockie, what word did you make up? Catastrophe. I like that. Best just getting naked in the corner. <laughs> um, what's going on in the West Midlands now? Was it catastrophe? Catastrophe, yeah. That's. Um, yeah, I, like I think we coined that in our MA classes, actually. Um, <laughs> obviously, we found quite a few things that were calamito catastrophes. It's definitely qualifies, doesn't it, Holmes? Definitely. I mean, I think the obvious question is: Did it? Did he? Did his actions were they sufficient for him to keep Gina? Yes, they were. <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough, these folks didn't die in vain, then, which is nice. <laughs> and then, prevailed. Yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned there was 800,000 Austro-Hungarian casualties in this, but just in these particular actions. But how many was there? How many is that out of the sort of total Austro-Hungarian casualties from the First World War? Oh, I can't remember. I think it comes in about five million uh, in total. So it's a pretty, pretty uh, big chunk. Yeah. I think the uh, the total casualties for the entire battle, including Russians, is over two millions. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Yes. And then, did, was it easier for the for the Russians just to leave the soldiers stranded in the fort? Was it easier for them just to leave them because eventually they're just going to have to come out rather than waste man, man manpower resources trying to get them out? 
No, they, they actually, uh, the, the Austro-Hungarians uh, were forced to attack through the mountain passes, and there's like uh, four or five of them. Uh, and that made communication between the different units completely impossible and made it super easy for the Russians to, to counter-attack. And what they actually do is, uh, during the first offensive, it turns into a massive Russian success as they counter-attack and take all the... Uh, the Austro-Hungarian supply sectors, so they can't even supply their own troops on the, the second and third offensive. But that, of course, doesn't deter Conrad from carrying them out. So, um, obviously, love prevails. <laughs> That's like the main focus. Of yeah, this looking for the positives here, it would be 800,000 casualties, yeah. Yeah, lot, millions, millions dead just because uh, the guy's in love. And um, you know what? Justice would have been if she'd have dumped him or cheated on him with his aid. Or shot him. Yeah, yeah, that works too. It's like, well, you bastard. He's, he actually has, uh, he has one of his generals adopt her uh, so he can marry her because the laws in, uh, in Hungary is different from the laws in, in Austria on marrying when you're divorced. So uh, he has to marry a... Uh, a Hungarian general, so that he can legally marry her afterwards. I thought you were going to say she had to be a virgin for him <laughs> to marry her. I was about to say, where the hell is this going? <laughs> it's interesting to see a, a man who probably killed more soldiers than sperm in a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Fairly um, impressive. The guy, he's just, it, it is epic the slapstick element isn't there but it is just you look at it and you're like what the fuck zach can you do any better as our last contestant today not in terms of numbers i can't but this is this is a bit of a weird one for me actually because usually on history hack i just steal a good idea of someone else and pass it off as my own but i can't do that this week um but we've had one irish cock up tonight so why not just finish off with another one for good measure Everybody knows that Wellington was one of Britain's most accomplished generals. His career spanning decades as a commander um, was characterised by never being defeated in open battle, despite almost always facing a numerically superior force. He was one of the world's greatest micromanagers to the point of writing orders, telling people what type of feed their horses needed. He was acutely aware that a poorly supplied army was doomed to failure and had the administrative skills and the mind-numbing attention to detail to ensure that that didn't happen. All of which makes what I'm going to call the balls up at Burgos an even more epic fail. By the summer of 1812, Wellington's Anglo-Portuguese army had finally tipped the balance in the Peninsular War, something which had taken them four years to achieve. In January and April of that year, in two meticulously planned sieges, the fortresses of Theodore Rodrigo and Badajoz on the Spanish-Portuguese border had been captured, opening up the roads into the heart of Spain and allowing Wellington to take the war to the French for the first time in three years. At Salamanca in July, he won a crushing victory over the French army of Portugal, which has been described as the destruction of 40,000 men in the space of just 40 minutes. By August, Wellington was in Madrid, having liberated the capital, ejecting the incumbent... Um, it was actually Napoleon's brother, Joseph, um, from the throne in the process. He had a central position from which he could strike at any of the French forces to the north, to the east or to the south, liberating even more of Spain. He had the momentum and the psychological advantage. What did he do? 
pissed all of that up the wall, almost literally, by laying siege to an insignificant castle in the north of the country. No one really understands why Wellington became fixated with Burgos. He could have just used a very small force to keep the 500 or so Frenchmen inside occupied and then taken the fight onto the French. He didn't. He focused on taking this minor castle, giving the other French forces in Spain the time that they needed to get their shit together and come up with a plan to actually deal with him. Wellington was convinced that he could take it in a week. A month later, he still hadn't got inside. Wellington, the master of meticulous planning, had just three siege guns with him to to reduce this fortress's walls. And one of them had so many parts missing that the men nicknamed it Nelson. Wellington was offered more guns by a nut job called Sir Hume Popham. Popham was properly mental. When he was told to capture the Cape of Good Hope earlier in the Napoleonic Wars, he did as he was told before randomly deciding that he also needed to launch an assault on Buenos Aires on the other side of the Atlantic. By 1812, he'd somehow managed to persuade the Royal Navy to give him command of a squadron that had the guns, but getting them to Burgos would have been pretty difficult, considering that the French were more or less in the way. So Wellington refused. When it became obvious that he wasn't going to be able to batter those walls down, Wellington ordered his men to lay a mine and then timed a night assault to coincide with blowing it. Pretty simple stuff. But things didn't go to plan. The force that was sent to assault the fortress got lost, despite having a local guide, and when the mine blew, they discovered that they'd made the slightly significant error of having dug the tunnel a few feet too short, which left the wall only slightly damaged. Eventually, they blew up another mine, but when they assaulted the outer walls, they couldn't get into the inner defences, and so it dragged on even longer. In the end, Wellington had to accept that the whole thing was a pig's ear. The French forces in the north and the south of Spain had decided that enough was enough, gave up their hold on the rest of the country, and decided to try and encircle him whilst he was sitting on his ass, not achieving much outside Burgos. Wellington realised that the shit had hit the fan and basically had to run for the safety of the Portuguese border. Madrid was abandoned. The inhabitants lined the streets to hiss at the withdrawing British soldiers. Outnumbered two to one, Wellington then tried to persuade the French to fight him on exactly the same site that he had won the Battle of Salamanca on in July. And unsurprisingly, they refused, so he had to keep running. The icing on the cake was that in the last days of that retreat, one of the commissaries decided that it was so important to keep the food from being, a cap- from being captured by the French that he sent it off on a route far away from the, the army's line of march, forgetting that the troops needed those supplies in order to not starve. The upshot was that hundreds of men died in the siege and the retreat in the appalling weather from starvation or from their injuries, and the troops ended up going back into winter quarters in exactly the same villages they'd been quartered in 12 months earlier. The last seven months of campaigning had been completely wasted, and the French had pushed the British back to Portugal almost without firing a shot. Outstanding. Uh, Dorman has loved all this British failure in military things. He's just been sitting there fist pumping randomly. I'm not, I'm well done, Zach, for getting through that, despite the fact that Beth is basically stripping in the top left corner of everybody's screen. And the, uh, and it's like literally, <laughs> I mean, she hasn't yet jumped on the fact that Lawrence has just typed the word withdraw on there. But anything else with a remote, <laughs> look at her giggling with a remotely smutty <laughs> double innuendo. 
Amy's getting to see. What's brilliant is that she's got to get on phones and deal with vulnerable old people all tomorrow um, with a hangover. Holmes, were you distracted or did you manage to listen? Um, no, I, I was writing notes and, and conferring with Alina as well. Um, that didn't seem like a massively epic fail to me, really. But it didn't have any significant consequences, did it, in the general scheme of things in the Peninsula Wars? Only in the sense that the British and Portuguese and Spanish were on the verge of kicking the French out of Spain altogether and being able to invade the south of France and take the war to Napoleon 12 months sooner than they were actually able to. But apart from the fact that the French were able to reoccupy Madrid, um, not that significant. I mean, it depends whether or not you consider Spanish independence to be an important issue. Um, I don't think about it on an hourly basis, to be honest. I just love that Lockie's just put Clive's a fairly vulnerable one <laughs> into mind. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm happy. I'm happy to help in whatever way I can. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> just like to apologise to Beth's husband for the fact that we never once tried to stop her <laughs> tonight. Uh, Alina, any questions about that? Well, Zach, you started talking about Napoleon. Sorry, Wellington. Napoleon. One of those guys. Significant difference. Marcus will kill you for not understanding the distinction. Okay, one of those dudes you decided to talk about. Did you kind of have a boaty moment? I had a massive boaty moment. I lost the plot. Didn't know what was happening. So I decided to talk to Holmes instead. And I'm lost. So can you kind of narrow this down for me a little bit like Lockie did? Okay, so clever man manages to piss his advantages completely up the wall by sitting in front of a wall, failing at knocking it down, and then has to run away. Does that help? Cool. Perfect. Ideal. Cheers for that. No worries. Oh, dear. The fact that everybody's ready and willing to do that for you says it all. Okay, right. You guys um, have got to now not only decide actually what is the most epic fail, but you've also got to decide who was bullshitting you. Um, whilst we go round the room, um, God help me, I'm going to start with Beth. Beth, if you couldn't have your epic fail moment, what's the most epic fail you've heard tonight? I'm not going to lie, there's too much wine in my system to really care at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Someone else's, not mine, because mine was shit, so. Merrin, are you any less hammered? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> the most epic fail you've heard tonight that wasn't yours? That South African chronicle thing that went <laughs> on and on. And on. And on. Lucky, you prevailed. Yeah. And on. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky did Das Boot Part 2 Yeah That was possibly as long as Das Boot So I don't think Holmes is going to be with you on that. That, was, that was far more entertaining Than Das Boot, trust me Oh, you're making Nikolai angry Clive, if you can't have yours I think it would be the Scots in Panama That's a lovely that, story That would be mine as well That was pretty fucking epic To be that clueless about colonisation That you forget, like, food and stuff Outstanding. Zach? I've, I've got to say Kits is the best, but I don't think it's genuine. 
uh, you think it's the bullshit of. Yeah, it, it is. It is a true one. I've I, I know I've heard it before. Oh wow! Oh, thanks, Clive. Oh, bugger! Killing the mystery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, General Bush. It's a double bluff. Calls bullshit. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you've all heard, all heard the, the the Battle of Karen Seeds as well. Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. on a previous down the pub. Yeah. Uh, Dorman. Uh, well, I think the, the the biggest fail of the night has been Beth's liver. Um, <laughs> <laughs> aside from that, um, I don't know. I think uh, I think the, the, it's nice to hear of an Irish brigade not succeeding in a military context. So I'm going to go with Lucky as well. Lucky. Um, I think Austro-Hungarian fortress fuckery and death. Is uh, is a pretty significant fuck up. Yeah, if the Scottish thing wasn't so damn amusing, <laughs> I, I would have gone for that. But it makes me angry more than entertained. Uh, Nikolai, go for. Oh, the Scottish one as yep. well. Yeah, that one was brilliant. Uh, who haven't I asked? James. Uh, I'm actually going to go with the Carpathian Winter War. The Scottish one is hilariously funny. But just the amount of people that guy killed because he wanted to get in bed with his mistress is just. And I have asked, you haven't asked him tonight, but I have asked Nikolai before, is she even fit? (laughs) (laughs) Your answer is. My answer? Yeah. Uh, she's alright, <laughs> but I wouldn't kill 800,000 people for her. What's her name again? Oh, is, she, is she more of a 400,000er, so to speak? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> it's the hell well, of a Troy game, then. isn't it? How many, how many ships would you launch for, for her? <laughs> what was her name? G- Gina, was it? Something like that? Gina von Reininghausen. How many camels would you trade for her? How many what? Camels. <laughs> camels. Oh, yeah, you would. <laughs> you were actually awaiting, awaiting an answer. <laughs> no, I think we're just pausing while everybody Googles it. Uh, who else? Lawrence. I'm going to say the Battle of Snaps. I think that fighting for alcohol is a really great thing, <laughs> even if it is your own side. I like why they build a fort out of the Snaps as well. Wouldn't you? Yes, you would, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Beth would right now. Beth can't see the problem with the snaps at all. <laughs> to be honest, I can't see straight at the moment, so <laughs> bring on the snaps. <laughs> I'm so glad that I know you don't have any snaps in your house. Right, who else haven't asked? Kit? Uh, it's Von Raining Housing Men. Um, I think it's got to be... <laughs> uh, oh, that's just, just terrible. But that, the whole history of the Austro-Hungarian offensives, even like their first offensive. Didn't they lose like a quarter of a million men in the first two weeks or something? Yeah, something like that. Just a disaster. So Merrin and I just got back from Pretorio Benito and Nikolai was telling us that actually the last troops to get sent there by Austria-Hungary had never fired rifles, were just out of school and had no ammunition. Keeping it real until the last. (laughs) Right, has everybody had a go? Let's go to our judges then and find out. First of all, who's the bullshitter? We sort of disagree on this one. We've both got one each. So um, it's not Dorman now. He's terrified us into suggesting that it's him. So hopefully it's not him. But I've gone for Lawrence. 
And Alina? I went for James. Bullshitter, step forward. Who was it? You fools. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so pleased with that. I'm terrible at lying. <laughs> you know what? It was only because I thought he could stand up to scrutiny if you started to quiz him. But, Dorman, it wasn't all bullshit, was it? No, actually, uh, most of it is true. Um, the Irish Confederate Wars were a thing. There was a guy called Rinuccini who came over with a massive papal war chest. Uh, the factions did vie for it in ridiculous ways. And Rinuccini did end up giving it to the people he wasn't supposed to give them to in the end. Uh, no battle happened. That was the bit that I made up. But all the names were true and the places are all accurate as well. So hold on a second. My first initiative was to say it's you, Dorman. It yep. was and I should have gone with my gut. Yeah, I'm me. Dorman would make a great imposter in Among Us. <laughs> you know what, though? The hilarious thing is, the stuff that he was sending out from his MA had nothing to do with the story he spang you. He just sent you a bit of paper with a load of Irish names on it, and you were so The good news is that the level of fact-checking we've done tonight means we can all get a job on Channel 5. Yeah, so. <laughs> or or at least Sky History reform them. Oh no, there are there. You have to be a white man to be on Sky History. It's on the trailer anyway. Uh, Holmes and Alina, who have you declared has found the most epic fail in history? Well, I, we agreed on this, and we agreed on the second one as well. So I think I'll let I'll let Alina announce it. Well, I'll, let, should we do the second one first? Because yeah. then we can. Right, so the second one goes to our lovely, lovely kit for his lunatic Scottish people. Because that was, it was really funny. Um, but the number one prize goes to Are You All Ready? World War One Fuck Up. <laughs> Nikolai. Yeah, it has to be, doesn't it? 800,000 people. And it's the fact that the third attempt. The fucking thing had already surrendered. It's absolutely brilliant. Love prevails, I'm telling you. <laughs> well, if he'd have found with her, at least there would have been about 800,000 widows he could have tried with. That's <laughs> <laughs> actually the wittiest thing James has ever said on this podcast. <laughs> oh, oh, I love oh. it! Oh, burn! Burn, Conrad. <laughs> Right, okay, you lot thought you were really funny in the chat earlier on with Squirrelgate, but I see you and I raise you because next week we're going to do the most hilarious animal in history. You've got... Thank you for that one. Epically ridiculous fucking horse or badger or something that does something ridiculous in history and is famous for it. What? No. Thank you, Alex. I love you. Beth, you're going to love the Twitter DMs right now on the creature. <laughs> <laughs> I want fucking ridiculous badgers going into space and hamsters saving people's lives. And yeah, uh, we'll go completely the other way from all of the military strategy we've heard tonight um, because you all thought it was funny to be discussing the greatest thrill oh. in history on the chat. So now you can go find it. But I, I still think that's a legitimate horse. topic. I'll, I'll be talking this about is, this war is horse science's wheelhouse. 
I am going to dick all over you guys. Sorry, that's the, probably the wrong thing to say at this time. <laughs> that's the week after, Kit. <laughs> oh, we're in about half an hour's time if Beth finds a bottle of schnapps. <laughs> right, guys, thank you so much. Uh, I, I feel we've started the weekly shows again with a bang and made ourselves look every bit as uh, nerdy and ridiculous as we actually are. So I will catch you all on the flip side. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 